0: Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller.
1: And I'm Ben Schumann Solar. Let's get it going.
0: Let's do this. I'm so excited about today's episode. I know that I say that a lot, but I was really, really thrilled when this guest said yes. So today we'll hear from Elise Hu, who is just an incredible journalist. She uh, was a longtime NPR correspondent. She lived in South Korea and opened up the Seoul Bureau for NPR. These days, she is host of TED Talks Daily among other things. And she's just an extremely smart person who wrote one of the best research books I've read in a long time. And it's called Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the
1: K-Beauty Capital. About beauty in South Korea.
0: Sure, that's about beauty in South Korea, but it's about a lot of other things too. It's about politics. It's about technology. It's about just the way that culture impacts our views of ourselves and the world and what that means for job advancement, what it means for partnership, what it means for how you wake up and feel about yourself every day. So sure, this is, I mean, the cover of the book is this normatively beautiful woman's face and it says lessons from the K-Beauty capital, but this is about so much more than beauty products.
1: Yeah, it works for Simplify. I mean, when I listened to the interview, I was also like, how, what? You're like and then, one of the classics. And <laughs> then I was like, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. This is actually a huge thing
0: uh-huh.
1: that we're boiling down into. Right some things that hopefully people can walk away with from this episode and take out there into the world and, and feel better.
0: Yeah. It's a it's a nice micro way to look at some big macro issues.
1: So what should people look out for in the interview?
0: Um, I think that some really, really interesting parts that you'll probably be able to take into your day and talk about and uh, think about more thoroughly are pretty privilege, which is um, a great term, and what beauty labor actually is. And then I think also... About what tech is doing to us. You like that part, Ben. I guess we can talk about it afterwards.
1: Cool. So should we play the interview?
0: Yeah, let's do it. Hi, Elise. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Your book is called Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. This is one of the best reads I've had in a very long time. I am... Unabashedly fangirling oh. now, but you know, that's fine. But before we get into it, I always ask people, you do so many things. Elise, would you please introduce yourself
2: the way that you like to be introduced? Sure. My name is Elise Hugh. I am an LA based journalist, podcaster, and host. I host TED Talks Daily, which is the daily flagship podcast from TED. And for most of my career, I've been at NPR, the American Public Broadcaster, where I opened the Seoul Bureau in 2015. Great. So you're in Seoul for four
0: years. And right up front, I just want to say this book has flawless and K-beauty in the title, and the cover itself is, is filled with a normatively beautiful woman's face. Yeah. And this, in some, could make the casual browser think certain things. Oh, this is about makeup, or oh, this is about skincare, And yes, this book is about makeup and skincare, sort of, but it's actually about politics and sovereignty and freedom and feminism. And it's about how struggling to take and maintain control over our bodies is a a symptom of a world that's unwittingly suppressed and controlled by a system that's making us maybe prettier in scare quotes, but definitely also sicker. And this book is so meaty and accessible. And again, I'm really impressed. This book is about a lot of things, but what was writing this book about for you?
2: It was a lot of things for me as well. And ultimately, for me, it's about kind of being safe in our bodies and what it means to be safe Mm. in my own body. Because for a long time, I have wrestled just as a modern woman living on Earth. (laughs) I have wrestled with beauty standards and how much we're supposed to do to fit in or get in the door or be acceptable Mm. to the opposite sex or the same sex or just other people that we encounter day-to-day in our professional lives or in our personal lives. So to me, it's about bodily autonomy and safety ultimately, but that's not to say we don't cover makeup or don't cover (laughs) skin because so much of it is tied into my questions about how Korean culture and beauty got so big recently and how much digital technology and innovation is changing all of us. So first of all, I just want to say that
0: resonates with me so much. I was actually just this afternoon talking with a friend about how at 38 for the first time, I'm beginning to feel safe in my own body. Mm. And it's taken years and years and, and lots of thinking and lots of therapy. And there is so much that society expects of us as women to do just to be able to show up and do our jobs and have relationship and be okay in the world. That really struck me. A lot of this book did. But you have this term... The technological gaze, I think, which you just touched on. Can you talk a little bit about what the technological gaze is?
2: Sure. So we're all familiar with the notion of the male gaze, which is how women are supposed to perform for the perspective of men, heterosexual men. But the technological gaze is kind of a souped up male gaze, which is how all of us are expected to perform for a machine-driven perspective. Essentially Mm -hmm. that we learn from the endless social platforms that are available and all of the digital media and an increasing visual and virtual world, we learn what pretty looks like or what attractive is supposed to mean. And typically they adhere to whatever is popular globally and then more specific regionally. You know, it's thinness, it's firmness, it's smoothness, and it's youth. Somewhere between the ages of 18 and 35, we're supposed to forever be preserved. And we know this and these sort of standards are reinforced to us by images and by our engagement with these images and by filters, which make smoother, thinner, firmer versions of us. And the more that we feed or use these filters, the more we're creating a kind of gap between what we see of ourselves when we're on Zoom, even Zoom has touch up my appearance, or we're on social mm -hmm. platforms a bigger gap between what we see of ourselves digitally and what we see when we are just physically in our meat space world, standing in front of a mirror. <laughs> and I, I worry about this just because it's already difficult to reach the perpetually changing standards or out of reach standards of physical beauty as it is. But when physical beauty standards are driven by algorithms or AI tools, then the standards become downright cyborgian. It's impossible. And so technological gaze can position our bodies as projects to be worked on forever.
0: It also strikes me that it's a lonely making phenomenon too. If we think we look best when observed through a technological lens of some sort, then it makes it So much harder to inhabit what you just referred to as meat space, which I loved. (laughs) Harder to go out and be received without those touch-up layers. And in a world where we're getting lonelier and lonelier,
2: that's terrifying. Well, appearance pressures are so important to write about. And beauty standards are important to apply kind of a journalistic lens to. At, At first glance, you might see the cover of the book or you might hear about this book and think, oh, so it's about makeup. It's about so much more than that. And I think that we both, (laughs) as we talk about this, keep emphasizing it because how we feel about what we look like in the mirror, how we feel about our appearance does govern whether we actually show up in the world and raise our hands in class or even leave the Mm -hmm. house sometimes. I remember feeling like I was fat or ugly and not going places, like not going to a party. And if it's you and me and just a thousand more people or multiply that... It's just giant swaths of people who aren't showing up and being their fullest selves in the world because of concerns about beauty and appearance pressure.
0: Yes, absolutely. Oh my God. I want to talk about beauty labor in just a second, but I also wanted to say that um, you touched on something really important there, which is this idea that to look beautiful in everyday standards, it requires a lot of wealth and that creates
2: anxiety and the sort of like beautiful Uber class Well, I think that physical beauty has always been a kind of performance of class, right? It's a performance of privilege or it is a privilege if you were born just happening to adhere to these standards or a privilege that you can earn by changing your appearance or adorning yourself to kind of look this way. And there is a pretty privilege. I think numerous sociological studies have proven that We do treat those who are considered attractive better in society. They are more likely to get jobs. Mm. They are the presidential candidates who are taller, tend to win campaigns and, and elections. And it's wild, but the pretty privilege exists. And I think that all of us seem to internalize that from a very young age. And that means if you do have that privilege, you're constantly feeling as if you could lose it.
0: Yeah. And I kept thinking about, I was reading about beauty in this book, but I just kept thinking about fear and the fear that propels this, all this beauty work. It's really awful. How did you experience that anxiety when you were in Seoul?
2: Well, for me, for the first time in Korea, because in America, I am straight sized. I've never been marginalized for being as large as I am, but, you know, I'm a U.S. size eight, which is very normal sized or straight sized in the West. But I went to Korea mm-hmm. and for the first time I was told that I didn't fit, that essentially mm-hmm. I had to shop elsewhere, that, you know, I would go to some boutiques and they would just hold up two Xs, like they were making X with their forearms. <laughs> just like that. I'm too large. You need to leave. The reason why I didn't fit, just to be clear, is that So many Koreans can fit into what is called free size. What an ironic name. Uh Yes, and free size isn't free. (laughs) Free size is an equivalent to a U.S. size two. Free size is a prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, Korean women tend to try and reach a 50 kilogram weight standard. And having to, to experience that meant that I was sort of free in the sense that Since I could not fit, (laughs) I was free from the anxiety of having to try and maintain a certain Mm -hmm. weight in order to fit in, right? I was already out. Mm -hmm. But examining Mm -hmm. that and the sort of shame that (laughs) I felt and that I imagine other people would feel as a result of this is part of the reason why I ultimately wrote Flawless and explored it because it is problematic when our looks get framed as a matter of personal responsibility and that beauty matters so much that it's somehow a moral failing if you don't look beautiful enough.
0: Oh my goodness, yes. And that ties into what you were saying before about how it's a social responsibility to look a certain way, to uphold standards. And it's about respect for one's neighbors almost in Korea. Could you speak about that a little bit? It's such an interesting, and I think for me, it was a unique way to think about why I uphold beauty standards. I didn't realize that to some extent, we're all doing that to make each other comfortable in some way, but it's taken to a different extreme in Seoul.
2: Yeah. There are class dynamics in Korean society that we can't overlook where meeting a minimum bar of appearance is considered polite. So Mm. a Korean woman who gets plastic surgery to fit in isn't just looking good for herself. Though in America, I think a lot of plastic surgery pursuits are individualistic. It's like a competition, right? It's to look better. Mm -hmm. But in the Korean context, it's often to show respect to others in the community and then to signify where she might fit in a class hierarchy. And in some ways, it has helped those in lower classes who are, who are born poorer actually pass as middle or even upper class such that they can, you know, reach at least the trappings of a higher class life or be able to meet people or widen her prospects in a marriage market, which is still considered pretty important in Korean society. So the book really wrestles with the paradox of beauty work, right? There are democratizing aspects of it in the same way there are really class stratifying and divisive aspects of it. I think physical beauty can be empowering in some ways and canvas for expression. But then on the other hand, physical beauty and the pursuit of it can really be a trap and be a hamster wheel and feel like a crutch.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You say in in a couple different places in the book there's a phrase about beauty labor we can opt out but it hurts us. It's it is a choice
2: and not a choice. Yeah. Choice and not a choice was a real theme that came up again and again in my interviews mm-hmm. because I would ask women who sought plastic surgery or had gotten it or I would ask women who didn't and opted out. Kind of, why'd you do it? What were your motivations? Does it make you feel more beautiful? A lot of the same questions came up again. And again, a lot of their answers were, you know, this was a choice, but not really a choice, which is to say you can make individual decisions, but you're making an individual decision within a system. And when I talk about beauty culture, I mean an entire matrix in which your personal and professional success depends on whether you are good looking enough, because looking good tends to equate to morality and being good. So like if you look good, you are assumed to have a good life and that is the ticket to a good life such that if you don't look good or at least work hard to try and look better, then you are seen as lazy or incapable. And that can affect your mm-hmm. job prospects, that can affect your prospects socially, that can affect whether you're bullied or harassed at work, whether you're blacklisted from potential opportunities. So your entire life trajectory can depend on whether you fit in the conventional sort of beauty norms. Yeah. And th- this is what's what's called lookism, right? Yeah. It's another ism. It's appearance-based discrimination. So racism, add to racism and sexism, another ism. All of us who have been teased on the playground um, for knobby knees or for whatever it is that we looked like, for being too tall. thats We've been victims of lookism. Mm -hmm. What is different in South Korea is that lookism is kind of baked into its professional culture, such that headshots were required on resumes and passport photos were photoshopped by default. And parents would gift their high school seniors, high school graduates, plastic surgery because it would help them in the job market. So... I was rather stunned by this because in the U.S. you would face just a slew of discrimination lawsuits
1: (laughs) if you were
2: were to require certain appearance um, standards in order to get a job that wasn't acting or modeling. But it's very normalized Mm -hmm. there and it had been for a long time. And it all makes sense then in this kind of culture why you would seek to get procedures or plastic surgery because it's not really a choice. You're living within a system. So when I criticize or critique the system, it's definitely a don't hate the player, hate the game situation, because it really, Mm -hmm. I'm describing the game that's problematic.
0: Yeah. I was thinking a lot about how so often take it like a sheet mask is the universal sort of online symbol of self-care. Go (laughs) home, do a sheet mask. and. Self-care, this isn't really self-care. Can you talk about how it's harmful that some of these beauty standards can masquerade as self-care?
2: Just that self-care is so overused as a term now that it almost is devoid of meaning. What I worry about, and I I absolutely believe in the notion of rest and Mm -hmm. really taking a moment for yourself and being embodied. I also think that it doesn't need to be co-opted by marketing and industry And self-care doesn't have to cost any money. (laughs) By the time we get to the end of my reporting journey in the book, I write that self-care really needs to be predicated on a notion of community care and reciprocity and caring for one another because we don't live on little islands and we don't live in vacuums. And that caring for one another is actually what lifts us up and makes us feel better and can be such a cure for times where we have felt depressed and anxious. And a sheet mask won't do that. I think that there is value to whichever beauty rituals do make you feel sort of like you're taking a step deeper into yourself. But if we are getting involved in various 10-step routines or trying out procedures that are costing a lot of money in order to see results and it is getting to feel like a pursuit is endless and laborious then that's really far from self-care. It's actually running your body into the ground. And so just being able to check ourselves and kind of ask, like, is this ego-driven or is this soul-driven? It's so
0: beautiful. And I, I love that you quoted Emily Nagoski at the end there. I'm a big fan of her work and her work on burnout. And this idea, it came through really loud and clear at the end of the book that that connection and rest are the most important things. It seemed to me anyway From what I was seeing on the internet and what seemed to be in the zeitgeist as we were drawing toward the end of the first year of the pandemic and going into the second, I thought that people were beginning to really get it, that rest is actually really important, that connection is actually really important. But honestly, as things start to pick up again, I'm not sure that we really got it in any lasting way anymore.
2: Yeah. You know, we had such an opportunity, I thought, during those 13 months or so where most of the world was slowed down. Obviously, I wouldn't wish a global pandemic on anyone and wish we didn't have to go through it. But since we did, I did think there was an opportunity at that time to remap our relationship with work and our relationship with hustle culture (laughs) writ writ large, which is interesting. I am hearing more conversations about like, I am not to be reached on the weekends. I will not respond. You know, I'm not going to be checking Slack and being always connected, especially at the beginning of a social media culture in the early aughts, I think was just something that we all kind of just did without really questioning it. And the pandemic did afford an opportunity to question that, but. Just as millennials are remapping their relationship to office work, we also have an opportunity to remap our relationship to aesthetic work, to body work, to mm. appearance work. And I'm not sure that I'm seeing that happen. Something that I think is hopeful is that more and more women are not dyeing their hair as they're going gray. Mm-hmm. I think post-pandemic, just anecdotally, I'm seeing more people just wear their hair gray and not touch up roots again and again because we did get to go a long time without touching up our roots. And I think that's kind of heartening because the antidote to increasingly rigid beauty standards of course is diversity and variety and seeing more and making sure the kids as they're coming up see more diversity and variety and not just what they see on their very echo chambery TikTok feeds. But uh, but the recognition and having this discourse is so valuable, right? And you have this wonderful passage, I think it's toward the end of chapter 4 and you said that you'd excused
0: yourself from noticing the effect on all of us when we enforce beauty mandates Mm. from considering who benefits when women expend so much energy enhancing ourselves.
2: And who does benefit? Oh, gosh. (laughs) The corporation. (laughs) The man benefits. The man. (laughs) It's big beauty. It's big media. It's the producers of culture. You know, this book gets into a little history and tracking the global rise of Korean beauty. And it came up alongside production of Korean culture. So K-pop, K-film, K-drama, and it's all so mesmerizing and alluring and delightful. And I love it. But at the same time, it's these big forces, these big cultural producers that also produce representation and what we see and also what we don't see and the implicit values that are shared around the world when we see K-pop girl groups, you know, and their long skinny legs and approximately same snatched waists and their big eyes and their small noses and their porcelain skin, which is flawless and all of that. So I think that the more that we kind of see and try and reach these standards, the more we're also upholding them. And so it can make us feel individually better if we get rid of the creases on our forehead, for instance. But it's not good for the collective. It's not good for our communities because it normalizes not having creases on our foreheads. Absolutely, yes.
0: I, for one, am very glad that your book exists and I hope that you do a lot more talking about it. I think that we may have touched on this already, but I always like to ask if there's one thing that you wish that people understood better about about this field that you covered, what do you wish that they would understand now? that maybe they didn't before they listened to this episode or read your book. I know that you wanted to change things by writing this book. It's really
2: clear. And what do you hope you've changed in their heads? Yeah, I just hope that more and more join this fight for bodily autonomy and for a world where mm-hmm. everybody can be granted equal respect and safety and dignity regardless of its size or its skin smoothness or whether it's youthful or whether it's age or its health status, that one way that we can think about beauty is that we can look for beauty in the way that we look for art or truth or love as more spiritual and less surface mm. level. And that the beauty that we do see in the world that kind of meets our eyes and is at the surface level is often better because it's different because it's full of variation and diversity and that we can search for that when we go out and look for beauty in the world.
0: I love that. Last question. This is
2: nominally a book podcast. We talk about (laughs) lots of ideas, but have you read anything lately that you've really loved? Oh my gosh, I'm in the middle of Curtis Sittenfeld's novel, Romantic Comedy, which takes place behind the scenes of a comedy sketch show like Saturday Night Live. The protagonist is a writer for the show and she meets one of the guest hosts. Cause you know, the hosts only come on these sketch shows for the week that they're preparing for mm-hmm. the Saturday night show. And they start an entanglement that is just so dear and engrossing. The other <laughs> book that I just started is by the writer Eve Babbitts and she wrote a collection of essays called Slow Days, Fast Company. So I'm based in Uh LA and it's so evocative of Los Angeles and Southern California places in the 60s and 70s. Mm. It really puts me and gives me that sense of place. And uh, I'm just really enjoying that too. Awesome, thank you. I think
0: reading fiction is such an important component of an everyday healthy human diet. Elise, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It's such a pleasure. And I want everyone listening to go out and read your book. Thank you, Caitlin, I appreciate it.
1: Welcome to the bookend, where we end with books and beauty stuff. Let's talk about let's talk about these, like you said, a micro way of looking into a huge topic. Mm-hmm. Um, what stands out to you from the interview before we get into the books?
0: So I think what what I what I said to you earlier, and we talked about this a little bit, is that the reason that this feels like such a simplify interview to me is, yes, it does take a micro, and, and it's a nice way to look at a macro, but. Also, I feel like one of the main points that we always get to with a Simplify interview, especially lately, is that connection is the most Mm. important thing. And especially at the very end of this interview with Elise, she says um, essentially that connection and rest make us beautiful because we are in cooperation with one another. So, I mean, if we think about that, then it makes all the things we do to prettify our faces, all of our sheet masks, all of these Quite wacky and extreme sounding procedures that you can get in South Korea mm. just seem, I wouldn't say silly, but seem less important. I, I wear makeup. I really like makeup. It's fun. I have a good time painting my face sometimes. Yeah. But I also understand that, you know, it's not the most important thing about me. And if I have to like figure out, am I going to be 10 minutes late because I'm going to put makeup on to see my friend or if I'm just going to go and look a little washed out? I will choose the second thing because connection is more important. Speaking of which, the technological gaze.
1: I love the technological gaze. I mean, I love the concept. Yeah, because, you know, like there are these Tic Tac trends or there's, you know, um,
0: filters on Instagram, filters on Zoom. Filters on Zoom. I thought
1: that was so interesting. And right, who are we performing for? It's just interesting. We perform for society, we perform for our wannabe partners, we perform for maybe our bosses, we perform. And then the idea that we perform for the algorithm. Is not, not it's something crazy. I'd really thought of that explicitly. And I um Yeah it is very I don't know, it's interesting. Yeah. It makes you think.
0: This idea of beauty labor, like who are we making ourselves beautiful for? And so what I thought was really interesting, or one of the many things from this book that I thought were interesting, the number of screenshots I have from reading this book on my <laughs> phone on the Kindle app, it's insane. Nice. But um is this idea of beauty labor is really interesting to me. And and in South Korea, Making yourself beautiful is seen as a social responsibility to other people, which I think is very, very interesting. And I I think about like my grandmother, and she absolutely thought of beauty in that way. Like getting ready to go to church, she would only put on her best things. And it wasn't just about wanting to look the best in the room. It was about respecting the other people there that she only saw once a week. And God, of course. Mm. Obviously, God is really into makeup. He loves a cat eye.
1: But come on, that's not that, that definitely is still relevant now. I mean, I just recently was talking to my, the woman who cuts my hair about how COVID was for her. And she said she has people she sees every Friday for the weekend. Like they Um, get done every Friday or for a dinner. And she was saying during COVID, she went over to their house, like because they needed it. It was like important to their. Live somehow. I don't know if it was career based or if it was society based or mm-hmm. what, but she said it's definitely still a thing. Obviously, yeah. that people—I mean, that's why this book was published—that people still see it this way. It's obviously still here.
0: I guess the conclusion that I'm taking from this is that—is that thing that I said at the beginning? It's—it's the the connection and rest make us beautiful because we're in in concert with other human beings and we're in touch with ourselves and our own human experience. And that it's not bad to want to look good. I want to look good. But I think it's also very healthy to be aware of the ways in which the pursuit of beauty and this adherence to beauty standards might actually be diminishing what makes our lives actually beautiful.
1: Yeah. It actually, it's a good segue into the book that I brought because you talk about connection and you mm-hmm. talk about, and then to me, I think about this word acceptance also. Mm-hmm. So the book that I brought is by somebody that actually you interviewed many years ago on Simplify. Oh, yeah. It's Cheryl Strayed. Oh. The book is called Tiny Beautiful Things. You know this book. Yes,
0: I'm placing my hand over my heart right now. Right. it's very important to me.
1: She also wrote the um, what was the name of the memoir Wild. Yes, uh, that was turned into the Drew Barrymore Reese Witherspoon, and also wrote the like life advice column for the New York Times. Was basically ad-
0: an agony aunt column yeah. called Dear Sugar.
1: So you were talking about connection and acceptance in the in the blinks. What we pulled out was also realization. So, I connect this to the Simplify episode in the sense of like realizing how much labor we put into beauty labor or who I am and what I'm doing to try and please other people or why. That was what I pulled out of the blanks. Listen to the truths we already know that that's what Charles Strait is trying to get yeah. across. It reminds me of a question my coach asked me a lot, which is like, what are you allowing space for right now? Like, what are you allowing space for? What do you allow? to take up your time and your thoughts mm. and why mm-hmm. i mean i'm not i don't spend a whole lot of time on my beauty or appearance but that is something it's
0: because you don't need to kid <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> but
1: the, <laughs> but the, you know that feeling of like you can't get out of the house somehow it's like ah, oh, do i want this thing or this thing yeah. where's oh, this thing oh,
0: intimately familiar with and that at some point,
1: <laughs> i'm just kind of like why am i allowing this space like get out so yeah cheryl Strait, tiny beautiful things what do you got
0: Beautiful. I love that book. And it's a nice episode, too. Go and listen to that, y'all, if you haven't yet. Um, What do I have? I have a book called The Aesthetic Brain by Anjan Chatterjee, How We Evolve to Desire Beauty and Enjoy Art. And it's basically about why the human brain responds to beauty and art. And there is a passage in it that uh, says that scientists have devised three basic parameters that constitute an attractive face. We love a list. Averageness, (laughs) symmetry, and sexual dimorphism, which is physical features that distinguish one gender from another. But I thought what was really interesting was this idea of averageness, Mm -hmm. because it shows that humans have this tendency to find statistically average facial features more appealing than atypical ones. I know. And it made me think about what Elise says toward the end of this interview about how we should start looking at beauty in other people's faces the way that we look at art. Look for what makes it particular and special. And I love that idea. And that is an idea that I will be taking for myself into the real world.
1: <laughs> nice. Yeah. Which I hope everybody does with a lot of the stuff in this episode. Because Absolutely. Because this is also why I love Simplify, that we can talk about something that seems so niche. And yet it's actually about what do you spend time on and how do you see yourself, which is a, like a critical well, how do you How topic. do you see
0: the world? Yeah. What mindsets are you going to take out there to make the world better and
1: not worse? Sweet. Let's end on that.
0: All right. Rad then. Simplifies produced by me, Caitlin Schiller. You, Ben Schumann-Stoller. Maria Levichik, who debuted her editing skills Way on this go, episode. Maria. Go, Maria. Intern extraordinaire. And Stefan Obadia. And if you want to try out Blinkist and you want to read the blinks to those great books that Ben and I mentioned, you can go to Blinkist.com slash simplify, tap on try Blinkist and enter the code beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y. You can enjoy everything in the library for 14 days, most of which, and one way or another, Ben and I have worked on somehow. So True. get in there, check it out, and we'll see you in two
1: weeks. See you. Bye. Bye.